0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, a series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, With us today is Asif Bayat, professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and author of a new book, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, Making Sense of the Arab Spring, which was just released by Stanford University Press. Uh, Asif, uh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the origins of this book, and yes. what were you trying to accomplish uh, with, uh, with this particular book?
1: Yeah, so when uh, uh, you know, the first protest happened in Tunisia, and then quickly moving to uh, Egypt, uh, of course I was following the events, and I had lived in the Middle East for a long time. And uh, it was kind of my preoccupation to follow the uh, political events, especially protest movement, which i have been uh, interested for a long time, both in Iran and other places, to uh, study and, and, and document. And uh, so, but it's still at that time, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to write a book about it because I don't know where it will actually lead to. But I would say that uh, by the summer, uh, 2011, when things uh, became a bit clearer uh, about the way in which these revolutions, uh, whether in Tunisia or Egypt, and uh, were unfolding, uh, I felt uh, that there was a need for me to um, sort of uh, rethink about my understanding of revolutions. I had. Uh, lived through an aerial revolution in the late 1979. Mm -hmm. I was involved in it. I mean, Iranian revolution. And I had studied it. uh, And through that, I had studied other uh, revolutions of 1970s. Uh And then uh, I see these revolutions (laughs) unfolding in front of my eyes. And uh, I was somewhat perplexed Mm -hmm. by what I thought was some significant differences between the patterns of the Arab Spring and the ones that uh, I had studied and uh, in one of them I had participated
0: So it, what are some of the major differences between Iran in 1979 yes. and what you observed in 2011? Yeah, so,
1: uh, I mean, first of all, uh, I thought that the, the Iranian revolution was uh, in some way a <laughs> revolution in the sense of a um, popular movement that came to push uh, for the complete overhaul uh, of the state, that the state was, institution was transformed, mm-hmm. the new ideology came, uh, and of course opened also the way for the transformation of society. Whether it, whether it is good or bad is another question of course, right, right. but the change was really fundamental at the time. Yeah, But in the case of the Arab uh, Revolution, uh, I felt a significant continuity from the past uh, order, um, so that was, a, of course, the end result. But in terms of the very characteristics of these revolutions, uh, obviously, and everybody has said that these revolutions were not uh, terribly organized, you know, in a sort of nationwide, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, coordinated organization with charismatic leaders. But also significantly, these revolutions did not have. Um, a kind of intellectual precursor, yeah. intellectual body of work that uh, inform, you know, the vision and the, of course, the strategies of not people.
0: ideological revolutions.
1: No, uh, but I also felt, and I wasn't sure really, and later on I found how, to what extent the protagonists who actually went into the street and began the uprising had necessarily a revolutionary vision, in the sense that they wanted a revolution in the way that we, in the late 1970s, thought that mm-hmm. there was a vision, you see. So these were fundamental, I thought, differences uh, between the two, which had, of course, implication mm-hmm. for the outcome.
0: So the, the title of the book, Revolution Without Revolutionaries, uh, yes. what, what, is, what what are you leading towards with that uh, formulation?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, by this really I mean a revolution uh, without revolutionary ideas. Mm. Uh, I mean revolutionaries in the sense of activists. Yeah, you had them in the sense of uh, really devi- devising and uh, carrying through uh, the tactics of mobilization, and they're very spectacular. But uh, I always wondered if they had necessarily a, an alternative vision about what kind of Egypt they right. wanted or what kind of Tunisia they wanted or Yemen they wanted. Yeah. Um, so uh, I thought that uh, a revolutionary vision, in a sense, an alternative order, uh, was uh, lacking.
0: And, and, and you think that those ideas are really important then?
1: I, I think so. Uh, it's interesting. And I actually began the, began the book by saying that people may or may not have the ideas about revolution for it to happen because uh, revolution simply <laughs> in inverted yeah. commas really happened. But having or not having ideas about revolution makes a difference to the outcome when it actually happens.
0: Is it that there weren't ideas or that there were lots of different ideas that weren't unified into a single coherent? I,
1: I don't think uh, I don't think that there were revolutionary ideas Because these revolutions happened at a time when the very idea of revolution, the very concept Mm -hmm. of revolution, had been dissipated. I mean, the activists were not thinking in terms of revolution, right? In the way that the activists in the 1970s or earlier during the Cold War actually were thinking about the revolution. They were reading about revolutions, Mm -hmm. about other experiences, having groups and so forth, and imagining whether right or wrong. I mean, these—it uh, seems to me—didn't, uh, wasn't there uh, in the case of the uh, Arab uh, Revolution, especially the ones that I'm a bit familiar: uh, Egypt and Tunisia. You
0: you have this uh, formulation throughout the book where you you describe them as revolutionary movements with reformist aims. Yes,
1: yes, yes. So, to me, revolutions have uh, two uh, aspects to it. Uh, revolution as movement, that is spectacular mobilization, uh, insurrection, and so on, and then revolution as change, change, that is a vision uh, that uh, revolutionaries are uh, supposed to have to bring about and materialize change. Yeah? So in terms of mobilization, it was spectacular. So you had a uh, Tahrir moment, it mm-hmm. is very spectacular, it became a model you know, throughout the world, but uh, That spectacular mobilization did not necessarily lead to uh, the change that some uh, some protagonists were thinking that Tahrir itself was a model, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, as we know, it is very you know issue of complicated when revolutionaries or activists go onto the the street. Uh, In fact, empirically, it is true to say that they didn't know. Uh, what was to inspire. In fact, they were caught uh, by the revolution itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were made, in a sense, during the uprisings. And, in my view, because they didn't have a kind of ready-made blueprint uh, for the future, how to wrest power from the incumbents, how to change Mm -hmm. things, then uh, they had to improvise. Uh, First of all, how to go through how to wrest power from Mubarak or others. But in that process, actually, they began to think and discuss and so on. So yeah. there was a lot of improvisation going <laughs> on in the very process. And at one
0: point you make is that, uh, the success, at least in Tunisia and Egypt, the success was so fast that they didn't have time to yeah. develop these kinds of alternative formulations. Maybe they also overestimated their own... Yeah power and their ability to succeed? Uh,
1: first of all, they didn't expect this to happen. I mean, almost everyone, like, we, we were surprised. Yeah. We were surprised. Yeah. You so were at then,
0: AUC at the time? No, no, no. Oh, okay. you no, left. Right, left. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And so they didn't expect that uh, to happen. Uh, but also, uh, they, yeah, I mean, some way they overestimated in the sense that, because Tahir, for instance, in Egypt was really spectacular. And they thought that because they had the Tahrir and they had that kind of mobilization that led to the downfall of Mubarak, which eventually mm-hmm. it did, right? Subsequent changes would also would follow a similar logic. But there was, of course, uh, a difference. When the dictator abdicates, things changes the day after. The dynamic dramatically transforms. Yeah, Because people want to go home. <laughs> Because people have jobs and children, and you know they want to normality. They want actually to, uh, be, what do you
0: call it, to get the fruit of the revolution,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the time.
0: Whereas some of the activists, they want to stay in the streets because this is this is their identity.
1: That and also thinking that even if, uh, and this is in fact for them was their power. What else? Mm-hmm. They didn't have a particular organization. Charismatic leader uh, or hard power, for that matter. Mm. The Street was their power, but yeah, a street does not remain in the same way that they were expecting, which it did not.
0: Now, there's a, there's a lot going on uh, in the book, uh, you know, across the different chapters, and uh, I wanted to bring out some yeah. of those themes. Sure. So, one, you you talked about how the very concept of revolution had kind of dissipated, and one of the one of the arguments you make is you called the NGOization yes, yes. of resistance yes, how a lot yes. of these activists were kind of captured and tamed yes. by this notion of like working within the system and, right. and that sort of thing. so tell us say a little bit more about that like yes. like and, and this is related to your notion I think of this like poor middle class uh-huh, uh-huh, of, uh-huh. Uh, of how these people are educated cosmopolitan yes, but yes, in a yes, sense yes. circumscribed
1: yes. yeah but of course uh, when I talk about poor middle class, to me is a very significant actor that mm-hmm. I think emerged uh, before the uh, Arab revolutions and now has become a key actor in the Iranian protest movement that happened a couple of months ago, right? Uh, key. Uh, however, the uh, individualization, uh, I think, it largely had to do with the very time that the somewhat, uh, shall we say, post-revolution epoch. I mean, I'm talking about globally, post idea of revolution epoch. That is, after the end of the Cold War, uh, right? Uh, and the hegemony of neoliberalization mm-hmm. almost throughout the world. Um, so the thinking uh, or the social thought about social change was not revolutionary in the way that we had in the past. Huh? There was a different kinds of concepts came into being. Uh, after the Cold War, individuals became mm-hmm. very significant. state became something bad so society became good civil society became good but then civil society largely was reduced to really ngos mm-hmm. right and and so in fact so so um, there, there was a, a lot of opportunity uh, uh, as far as ngos was concerned ngos were exploded right throughout the world including uh, the middle east and a lot of young people actually were absorbed into these ngos who thought that they were doing something, in fact, they were doing things, you know, I think uh, very useful things uh, for charity, helping out, Mm volunteerism, these were very significant and they would learn also the skill of uh, activism and so on. However, uh, the vision in some way that, that brought was that this is how change happens. Rather than again revolution, right, in the sense of takeover of, of the state and big mobilization, in the way that 70s used to think,
0: there's there an interesting connection. Uh, you talked about how kind of the, the rural to urban migration, how uh, you know, people who go to the cities they come to expect yes. the kinds of services that right. uh, that were there. And it's something similar here with the NGOization, where the demands that are being made are essentially for the state to deliver on its promises, right. uh, rather than a demand to overthrow the foundations of the state. So, Correct. you say you're going to be democratic, or you're going to respect human rights, or you're Correct. going to provide services to the poor, and you're not doing it. Correct. So the NGOization fills in that gap rather than Very rejecting true. the promises in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean that's uh, that, that's 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 what I think. Uh, so in other words, uh, either I mean what kind of a critical approach would be? to actually demand the state to respect the social contract, the mm-hmm. traditional one, and deliver, uh, or uh, let's do it ourselves. Yeah. So that's the idea of charity and uh, yeah, giving and so on. That uh, in many cases, for instance, the followers of, uh, or the vision of uh, people like uh, Khaled Said was, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, uh, Amr, Khaled, Amr Khaled, Amr Khaled, right, life making, right. Mm-hmm. So but
0: within the bounds of an existing order.
1: Order, yeah, exactly. Uh, not necessarily even expecting the state to deliver, which also they did. But also the people should deliver, mm-hmm. should help each other, right? They become responsible, which is very different, I think, vision uh, that uh, of the 70s that really wanted not only the state deliver, but actually if you didn't deliver, then you should overthrow it and yeah. bring about a new state.
0: Now, there's another thread in the book, which I think goes back to your earlier work, um, this notion of non-movements. Yes, um, yes. Could you could you explain, kind of walk us through, yes. what what are non-movements and how do they relate to what we saw in 2011? Right.
1: So to me, uh, non-movement basically is the collective action of dispersed people right, who do similar things, uh, but uh, similar contentious things. For instance, in the case of, shall we say, Iran, uh, women who have been forced to wear hijab, some do voluntarily wear hijab, but many others do not want to uh, wear hijab. So uh, what they do, they put back their hijab, back and back and back, right? And they do it not necessarily as a movement, collectively, let's do it, huh? but rather they do it uh, in their everyday life mm-hmm. individually while they are in the street with a bus and then you do it, she's doing it, she's doing it, and many others are doing it, mm-hmm. right? and they are also noticing each other that they are doing, right? there is a, what I call the passive network you know, among these uh, uh, people so it's a collective action, contentious, uh, similar, uh, which is somewhat encroaching uh, into the law of the state, right? Uh, or norms, right. By doing so, uh, non-movements usually create uh, alternative norms uh, in society because there are so many of them also, uh, which you have alternative norms that contradicts the laws and the state should has to come to grip with it, to, to do something with it. did they confront, mm-hmm. right, uh, maybe violently which usually actually invites the collective then action of these people to get together Mm -hmm. uh, or modify in their laws in this sense they push forward so the significance i think of this concept is that while there is repression and big surveillance people are still able to do such things do things and uh, try to push for their claims in this fashion
0: so when the mass mobilization happens, yes. does it just wash all of that away or do the non-movements provide something of the substance of those movements? I think so. I
1: think uh, non-movements actually pro- provides a substance for it because non-movements actually make these uh, seemingly dispersed and truly like, dispersed people already mobilized, already thinking about you know, confrontation with you know, the law, state mm-hmm. and so on through their everyday doings. So it provides uh, somewhat of uh, shall we say foot soldier or uh, a- agents you know, to come into uh, uh, the contentious arena
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and get actually physically mobilized and uh, do carry out collective action as opposed to the past where they, when they were dispersed and uh, not collective.
0: So here we are in March 2018. Are we back to an era of non-movements?
1: Uh, excellent question. Uh, I, I think that um, I think that in non-movements are actually uh, pretty dynamic. Move between movement and non-movement depend upon the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, they, of course, the reading, in a sense, by the actors of the non-movement, of the situation, whether it is good to act collectively for reunion, for instance, or not. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, after the revolution in Egypt, a lot of street vendors who were very depre- uh, dispersed actually got together and formed, as you know, uh, the first uh, you know street vendors union. Right. Uh, however, when the um, state surveillance came back uh, and and mobilization in terms of forming organization becomes very difficult, then the likelihood is that those actors go back again to the non-movement mode. Mm -hmm.
0: So if you look at something like uh, Iran earlier this year, how would you understand that with the concepts you develop in the book?
1: Right. Uh, This is also an interesting question um, um, because I think a lot of the actors, uh, perhaps, of these, uh, or the protesters, of uh, these pro- protests uh, in Iran um, were involved in uh, non movements mm-hmm. but uh, but the state uh, uh, is also learning uh, how to deal with this because it, usually non movements happens uh, in the spaces that are uncontrolled unsurveilled uh, you know if you have bad uh, you, you know um, uh, ambiguous law, in fact, you know, the actors can uh, can use it, right? Um, if you have a, a law uh, which is not very strict about uh, taking over public space, then they are using it. Uh, and are, uh, you know, construction of uh, uh, homes, for instance, mm-hmm. illegally and so forth. But the states are now uh, learning it and they are putting much more pressure on the activities of uh, non-movements, and I think uh, w- when the actors realize that they can't actually uh, push for th- their claims through direct action of non-movements, uh, in fact they resort to uh, collective protests. Hmm. Uh? Um, I think collective protest basically is uh, making claim about their grievances. But, of course, uh, directly they don't achieve. The advantage of non-movement is that uh, the very doing itself, the very protest itself, is an achievement in itself. Uh, People who are street vending, right, uh, they are actually selling things and making a living. At the same time, they are breaking laws and encroaching on the state uh, prerogatives.
0: Okay. We've been speaking with uh, Asif Bayat, the University of Illinois, author of the new book, Revolution Without Revolutionaries. Uh, Asif, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.